Hello and welcome to the New Nationwide Project, a discussion and exploration of 21st century popular culture with myself, Julia Toppin, Rita Gale and Shireen Donnelly-Scott. Edition, myself and Julia Toppin set the scene by narrating statements written by Tottenham residents who reflect on the events of August 2011, 10 years on. We will then listen to Rita Gale's interview with two of the creators of War in a Babylon, an exhibition which considers the 2011 uprisings against the backdrop of the lived experiences of Black Britons since 1948. Tottenham has changed since the riots. It has become more modern with high-rise flats, big tourist attractions and the football stadium with new shops. This has made the area more attractive to the tourists, but very expensive for the people who live and work in Tottenham. With all the rejuvenation of the area, the community still has no trust in the police. The Tottenham riots can't be seen in isolation. Like most riots, it's centred around a particular incident. But where social and economic elements that came together to ignite it, poor housing, miseducation, no jobs or loan paying jobs. The incident that sparked the Tottenham riots of 2011, like the riots of 1985, was the police killing of a local black resident and the attitude ambiguity of the police and their statements and their actions in the aftermath of the incident. Remembering the history of policing in Tottenham from sus to stop and search and now racial profiling had already alienated the black youth of Tottenham to going three generations. Police driving around mob handed five, six of them in a van acting like snatch squads. I've lost count of the times I've seen young men being subjected to the indignity of stop and search, having experienced it myself when I was younger. To me, there's not been any real change to policing in the area, not for the better of the black community. Parts of the borough are being gentrified, but that does not affect the lives of the residents of Tottenham in any positive way. The high street lost a few more clothes and jewellery shops and family businesses have been replaced by chicken shops and phone shops. The police still do what they do. The pots only simmer until another incident turns up the heat. All the social and economic problems still exist. My name's Kamara Scott. I'm co-curator and I am also Stafford Scott's daughter. My name is Rihanna Jade Park. I'm also a co-curator. Tell me how this, uh, how 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 this exhibition came together. 
Okay, so Tottenham Wrights started the Mark Zuggan family campaign in 2011 after his death. And there was a inquest into Mark's death. The verdict was one of a lawful killing, but the jury said that he didn't have a gun in his hand at the time. So when the family went to try and reopen the case via the High Court, or have it judicially reviewed, um, they, would be, they refused it, and the family then had to take civil action against the police. Um, so in order to do so, they got in touch with Forensic Architecture, asked for a digital reconstruction that considered all of the remits that the inquest didn't. Um, out of that, they got a financial settlement, and then Forensic Architecture's work was made public and the ICA gave them space to put it on and they said that they needed the wider context in order to have it shown publicly um, in this space. So they invited Tottenham Wrights to come and curate an exhibition surrounding the death of Mark Duggan and just the community of resistance that led to the campaign starting and that's how we got here. Oh, I've known Kamara for 10 years. Yeah. <laughs> so, so, I mean, leading <laughs> off... <laughs> yeah, so, so leading off the right. Yeah, yeah. So, so leading off that, so what, what is, I mean, for the lay person, for those who don't know about the history of, of this exhibition, what is the wider context of this, of this exhibition? What is the wider context of the story? <sighs> or some of the themes of the wider okay. context? We've got, I know we can't talk about it all, but... Okay, so from a Tottenham perspective, because that's quite simple, in 1985, Cynthia Jarrett, a mother in Tottenham, was killed. Well, she died at the hands of the police. She had a heart attack after they searched her home illegally. Um, and there was an uprising on Broadwater Farm Estate. A police officer was killed during that uprising and Tottenham became notorious for its community of resistance. Mark Duggan is a child of Broadwater Farm Estate. So when he was killed by the police, um, it was naturally quite inflammatory. But also Mark was the fourth person in Tottenham to be killed at the hands of the police. So the other two after Cynthia Jarrett in 1985, Troy Gardner in 1991, and Roger Sylvester in 1993, I believe. Um, so yeah, so when Mark was killed in 2011, um, and the police did not go to his house or his home to speak to his mother and his family to inform them of his death, um, they attended the police station for a rally, um, calling for the officer in charge or for a senior officer to respond um, to them, to let them know what was happening. And that spiralled um, as the family were ignored. And yeah, uh, I think that's, that's it for Tottenham. Mm -hmm. What about, so the exhibition's happening now in the summer of 2021. Well, for those who are going to visit this, what do you hope they, they take from this from this exhibition, or well, from this experience?
experience of sort of seeing all of these characters being brought back in a way into the into the kind of into the front of the frame. What do you hope they take away from from this? Firstly, they never bring in the fact that this was meant to open in May 2020, which means there was no feather around policing. There was no question of state killings, least of all in the UK. And of course, we didn't have a summer of uprisings in the middle of a pandemic that locked everybody down socially. If we opened last year, I don't know what the response would have been. It wouldn't have been timely to an anniversary. It just would have been timely to particular people's lives. Now we have a chance for nationally for people to engage. Can we force them? No, I'd like to. It should be required. But even when you come here, can I force you to be empathetic, to be considerate, and to have some kind of impulse? You can't take on everything, but everyone can take a chunk of something. It can't be 10 people working on behalf of 100,000 for another 40 years. Um, Uncle Stafford should better retire soon, <laughs> knowing that there are people behind him. And we can't guarantee that right now. Not in larger numbers. Again, we're going to have another 10 for 40 years. I'm not allowed to. <laughs> I tell you from now, I have plenty of examples of what it looked like mm. to do this kind of work, thanklessly, under pressure, with little resource. Um, and spending my teenage years in austerity Britain and never seeing any other side of what it looks like to have social provisions, it's not sustainable to think about quote-unquote grassroots activism. But I can think about neighbourly work and mutual aid in a way that is manageable. What does manageable even mean? How do you manage injustice mm-hmm. and deprivation? That's a question we can all ask ourselves. Because that's, yeah, I don't do what you want. When you come here, I don't know what's in your heart. But I that's it. People mind. need to start asking themselves some serious questions about what they're willing to sacrifice and what they're willing to contribute who they need to be contributing to um, and what's urgent. Mm. How do you feel about this, um, in a way, this is just me considering it, that you're the younger generation and you're kind of very instrumental in this exhibition, in, in the kind of curation of it, the operations of it. What do you think I mean, I'm just trying to get a sense of how your generation and one's coming up, so because there's a lot of young people coming, school-aged children coming through. Well, what I'm understanding and hearing from people so far, of people of all ages actually, my friends who are older than me, have expressed the fact that they have had to look at this in one space at one time with full context. Um, and that itself is a lot to take in. And I think so. I'm like, basically, we've been here for like 70 years. It's not that long. So you can't take in this, especially in comparison to black Americans who've been together for 400 years on one land. We have these very complex migration stories that overlap with intra-ethnic issues and conflicts. And again, it hasn't been that long. So we're only one generation in, in full anyway. Mm-hmm. We should be able to get through some of these issues with some kind of haste. It's taken quite long to make any kind of movement in the UK amongst anybody of any age, but the young people have had 10 years of Black Lives Matter being an articulation and radical education online that has had the widest reach. We didn't have that when I was 17 and 18. They do. So they, they have a much wider movement politically than I. They have the vocabulary a lot earlier than I did. 
who they're listening to and who they're inspired by are two different things now. So I didn't have a lot of these black British icons, men or women, otherwise to look up to you if there were no stormsies or days to be like, well, I saw what I'm doing, social crew, we're not doing that, they weren't a social example. Mm-hmm. We now have social examples with some people, but they don't need to be heralded for doing the bare minimum, you know, you don't applaud fish for swimming. So who puts their energy or pressure on those older people to do that? I mean, no one's going to listen to me, not nobody, for the most part. You don't start with the black women who are listening to you. There are others who are older and of a different generation and gender. It seems it's been easier for people to repress and forget things than to keep that continuation. So that's why we have this large generational gap, we would imagine. If Boardwalk Farm is 85, that's not long of a gap for there to be this complete absence of cultural organising. I still have Saturdays schools throughout the 90s probably even passed into that. I was still there in, at 11 and 12. So that's quite, like going into the 2000s. But now, it's fizzled away. Um, there's no urgency for people. It feels very urgent to me. I don't, I don't know how to put a fire under people, to so to speak. But it's there. We have presented evidence mm-hmm. in full. Everyone should feel the same pressure that you have in your life, you know how much money you have in your pocket, you know what you have to do next month and what ends you can and can't meet, you know what court dates you may not have, you know if DWP are on your back, you have internal pressures and external ones, but you're not by yourself. We have some kind of commitment to care and consideration to each other, that's not we get to love, that's not a radical love, that's not radical hope, I'm asking for care and consideration and we have to start there. We don't have a culture of that in Black Britain anymore mm-hmm. where we care and consider each other. And that can only happen in being in the same room, being honest, and being given to an extent. But what comes in? What are you willing to sacrifice for how long and for who? And I can ask an 11 year old that, a 25 year old that, a 37 year old that, and they're all in the same condition. I'm here for young people at this point in time. I think staginess is one thing, but to continue the engagement past production, I don't know. Yeah, young people have the most power to motivate me. I don't organise around policing specifically, and that's not very I can't easily engage with law and policy making. I'm not sociologist. I'm not an educator formally. I am a historian of some counts, which means I have to consider cultural work, and even that is quite heavy and can be damning, depending on how much truth you're willing to tell. I'm hoping. Our UK is so uninspiring but it's where we're at <laughs> it's the passport i have what can i do running away is a bit ridiculous i'm tired of black french people having to leave and possibly come back but mostly just leave and be happy elsewhere not because i love britain so much but i should leave because i want to or i'm able to not out of force or fear it's really really quite overwhelming to see kind of this space being taken over by this by Tottenham, really, by this exhibition. Um, so that's very inspiring for me because that tells me that uh, that the two of you, two younger people, have kind of been instrumental in kind of this happening. Of course, with with you know with Stafford as well, but you've been instrumental in getting this into the space, right? Um, and that gives me hope because actually, this I couldn't have imagined something like this happening at the ICA. So for me, 
that's a big move forward. You know, that we brought Tottenham to the heart of central London, just down the road from Buckingham Palace, right? This horse guards is just across the road. I mean, this is the heart of London. Mm-hmm. And for me, that's a big thing. It, it tells me that uh, that we, 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 we have our, we're claiming our space, our place here, you know? Um, and I guess for the two of you kind of doing the work, it probably feels like not like that. Not, I don't know if you're in a place where you can celebrate that, but for me, uh, for me, this is this is a win. This is definitely a win. I don't know if it feels like a win, but I'm saying it's a win from what from the the very you know the, I'm talking about the recent history. Mm-hmm. Talk about the last five years. I couldn't have envisaged this happening. You know, and I think sometimes what we do in Britain, we often don't know the wins are the wins until long after. Mm-hmm. We think, oh, that was a win. But no one told us it was a win because then no one tells you you've won mm-hmm. or that you're winning. And it's only like 20 years down the line, someone tells you how brilliant you are. It's like Billy Grant died in 2000. So being in the exhibition, I realized it was so long ago. It didn't feel that long ago. For me, he's still very alive in my head. Mm-hmm. And I live in Southeast London in Lewisham. He was never my MP. But it was like he was my MP. I felt like he was fighting for everybody. Um, that we've come far, you know, mm-hmm. and uh, I think these times, so many people have met today, different generations, um, that this is a meeting place. I think you said downstairs that we brought the front line from Tottenham to SW1, mm-hmm. and I really feel that's true. It's like I feel like we're in Brixton Market or somewhere, you know, mm-hmm. or on the Black Market at Lewisham. I feel like we're like, or Deptford, you know, I feel like we brought people here, everyone's just gathering. Mm-hmm. You know, some people haven't seen each other for 20 years. They've met today. Mm-hmm. Had you not put on this exhibition, they wouldn't have met. You know? They wouldn't have met. And I think this is what is so important, is that you've created this space and that you've brought people together that would not have met otherwise, particularly under these times mm-hmm. with COVID. So I just wanted to say that. Thank you, Rita. It's intentional. Like... We couldn't have foreseen being given this space and not having two floors at all. Even when they contacted us and said that we can do our exhibition here, I didn't. I thought it was going to be a tiny little thing downstairs. But everything outside of being given this space has been intentional. The campaign on behalf of the Duggans, intentional. My dad being Tottenham, a representative of Tottenham, regardless of it being an unpaid, um, tireless, thankless job. He's been very intentional about holding that space and continuing to do that work, even when it's not easy. I've learned from him to be intentional about who's around me, who we consider community, what we give to them, etc. My friendship with Rihanna is intentional. Right, so when it when the opportunity arose, it was very easy for me to say to Rihanna. I went to Rihanna's house straight away, and I was like, Rihanna, I'm not doing this without you. Everyone's intention has come together in this space. So when people come and see it and they say, Wow, this is somewhere that we can use. Yes, because we care and we've poured it in. But that comes from outside of here. That is how we live our lives. 
So if there's something that people need to leave with, it's to, to be very mindful and considerate of the fact that whether you're here or whether you're dealing with police whilst they're stopping or searching you or you're in school and you're just trying to get through or whatever it is, you're here for a reason and you need there, there's something that you need to do. It's not easy to discern what it is, but there's something. And when you meet people who are like-minded, there's something in that. You know, it's like a sign. You have to do something with it. Don't not use it. We've known each other for 10 years. It's not by force that you do something, you know. Again, there will come a time and a place. So you need a bit of patience. But that's when you're being intentional about doing something and doing it the right way, you can take your time. So yeah, don't rush. Don't force it. I don't know how to explain it, but there's nothing that needs to be done, but what needs to be done will happen. Well, justice? No peace. Just <laughs> us. No just, peace, just, just us. Pick which one you want. Well, <laughs> it depends us. on the day. <laughs> but it's true, no justice, just us. And that's enough, though. Because we it again and again and again. Like, we're not going to have a mass movement in this country. We don't need we it. Don't need one. Listen, how can we be the minority asking for a mass movement? Well, exactly. Let's make it make sense. And asking for leaders. We don't need it. It's okay. It's fine. <laughs> you do what you can, and I promise you, you felt. You are listening to the new nationwide project. You are listening to the new nationwide project. Welcome uh, back uh, to the New Nationwide Project. Uh, this is Rita Gale. I'm joined with uh, Shireen Donnelly-Scott. And, um, you know, we're talking about uh, the 2011 uprisings, which happened across uh, England. You know, we're, we're focusing here or uh, on Tottenham. So, so Donnelly, you know, you've had a chance to, to kind of reflect a little bit on, on the interview I, I undertook at the ICA with uh, Kamara Scott and Rihanna Jade Parker, who are uh, two of the members of the curatorial team alongside uh, Stafford Scott, uh, Tottenham community activist, and also an installation that, that is uh, provided by uh, Forensic Architecture, which, as we said, is uh, currently on at the ICA until September 26th. 2021. What's, what are you thinking about in relation to sort of everything that's come in that we've kind of put out so far in the show? Yeah, thank you. I'm really pleased that we're, we're doing this episode. I'm, I'm really pleased that you were able to go, obviously, uh, logistic wise. I obviously cannot make it to the show and I'm absolutely gutted about that. Um, but I'm so pleased that you were and we can do have this conversation because, you know, I am from Tottenham. When I am back in the UK, I live in Tottenham. So, you know, this exhibition, I'm just so happy to hear that, you know, is on is on the radar, is on the map. Yeah, I'm just really pleased to see something like this. I'm really happy to see it. And also just knowing um, of Stafford Scott as being someone who's been a a community leader for so many decades so it's just great to have you know to know that this is this is an exhibition that's done justly 
in listening to the the testimonies um, that were voiced at the at the top of this show from from residents in Tottenham, and I I think actually it might be useful for you to maybe talk about how you went about sort of gathering that data and, and why we did it in the way that we did it. Yeah, uh, so I mean, yeah, having obviously come from Tottenham, you know, my family and friends are there, are still there. So, you know, I just kind of made a call both publicly on, you know, my social media um, and as well as, you know, send those to, send the call to my friends and family who I know, A, live there or have lived there, um, who obviously regularly go back. Um, or, and so I just kind of asked, you know, would anybody want to say something um, you know, I mean, I think everyone wanted to say something or many people wanted to say something, but maybe not say something on the record. I think that they were, you know, I got a lot of conversations or comments about that. Yes, obviously, this is great that you're, you know, dealing with this topic um, and it encouraged people to want to have a conversation with me about it, but not necessarily uh, on record. So that was a an interesting uh, kind of way to kind of navigate those kind of conversations where it's like, you know, I, I suppose there's something comforting, obviously, in them knowing me and being able to speak about this, but um, not necessarily wanting to speak this, speak about it publicly was interesting for, mm. you know. Mm. I think that ties in with some of the comments, you know, that were being made throughout um, the testimonies, if we can sort of start with those first, because I think... There were just points that I picked up on, you know, as I was listening to um, the narrations, I was thinking about, curiously, um, our first uh, show with uh, Dr. Lisa Palmer, because some of the things she talked about, and that was on our reflections of small acts, that mm -hmm. there's this mm -hmm. constant conversation about about the state, about about the relationship of black Britons, literally our physical bodies and our relationship to the state and this use of violence by the state. In this case, we're talking about the police, but there are other institutions or centers of power that are exercising this violence and that it's intergenerational, right? Mm -hmm. So mm -hmm. um, it's this intergenerational, that it's a real structural thing that's going on. And one of your, um, one of the testimonies which really broke this down yeah, remembering the history of policing in Tottenham from SUS. So SUS is the 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 kind of which is the kind of what I call what we would call the the kind of the um, originator of stop and search. Those were the original kind of um, it was an old I think it's a vagrancy law right that goes back several centuries that enabled mm -hmm. the police to stop you if they suspected you of they vagrancy. Suspected you, yeah, yeah just just suspected, the, just yeah, yeah. suspected. And our stop and search is a kind of updated version where basically, you know, their suspicion of you doing something, right? There's a now racial profiling has had already alienated the black youth of Tottenham going back three, you know, two, three generations of black youth, young adults. And I, I thought about that because in, in the War in a Babylon uh, exhibition, they contextualize the conversation, as we've said, from 1948, the what we call the, the post-war migration to the yeah. UK from predominantly or significant numbers from former colonies. Right. And I was thinking, you know, this violence is going back because we always center it on the youth. Right. 
But if this is going back, you know, generations, then we've got people, well, well, we know this, (laughs) you know, we're now in their 60s and 70s who grew up in this country experiencing police violence, right? So this is now you've got this kind of, they've got the grandparents, the parents, the children, the young children, because the police are trying to get into the schools, as we know. There's a fight going on right now on that, that we're all experiencing this violence as this person. So as as they're watching the young men being subjected to the indignity, mm-hmm. it's mm-hmm. like it's triggering the experiences of when they were experiencing it. So like, you never escape it, right? No, I agree. I agree. And I think that, you know, you're right. That is a really powerful testimony. Um, One of the things that I find compelling as well from it, which I think also just speaks to your point, um, you know, is the fact that, you know, this is obviously, you know, there's a way in which obviously this is kind of generational um, and that there's a kind of repetition in terms of, you know, the um, younger people, younger boys specifically are the target of this, you know, try it against the police and you know and you know when you get older you may not be the kind of focused target but like you said there's still repercussions of like witnessing it and seeing it occur and as well as I imagine if this is like your your children or your grandchildren you know it's probably really hard to see that so I think there's that trauma that you see from that afterwards but I think that also the fact that this is um, a kind of campaign against young men brings to me that kind of parallel you know in the US where they talk about the 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 school to prison pipeline which is that you know it's essentially a way to kind of cut young men's futures down Mm -hmm. before they even get to live that future because they're already being harassed by the police which is giving them a clear kind of message about how they're supposed to navigate the world but also you know there's these ideas of um you know being you know arrested for small uh, for minor infractions as well as you know having said that being arrested for minor infractions or even just be suspected of something gives police uh the kind of power to take data and take you know your details take your your dna um even if you're not ultimately you know uh kind of like convicted of a crime you know, it's all these ways in which there's a kind of sense of terror that is being encroached on them. And I mean, I remember reading this, I mean, this was a few years ago now, probably like around the early 2010s. I remember there was a lot of conversation around the DNA database. Mm. Um, and the, there was like, a, um, you know, within the media saying that, you know, with black men being more likely to have to subject their DNA to the register, it is like more than likely that, you know, even if you've not committed a crime, that there's someone in your family or your family tree that has put their DNA on that register. And so there's ways in which they can trace you. And I just remember thinking that was just incredibly troubling. And it was like, I think this is like even before, you know, DNA, you know, technology as we know it like right now at the height of it. So it's it's just really troubling to see this kind of campaign and this way of profiling uh, black black communities. Yeah, yeah, I I think you're absolutely right. I mean, and yes, you know, there was that whole campaign, it was then ruled unlawful. But we still don't really know what happened to those samples or whether these data is still there. Because once you have the data, because of the relationship, because, you know, there is so much mistrust, generally, not just within the black communities uh, in Britain, but generally with the state. 
that it's like even when the you know the the high court for example has said okay this is unlawful get rid of it but has it been got rid of you know what i mean it's like you you never really know right because there's no demonstration that this stuff is destroyed and also if it this is stuff that can be stored on a, a zip drive you know um but also it leads on to and this is what's so wonderful about the exhibition is that it picks up on all of these themes in a way that only activists who are on the ground mm-hmm. who were there who are local like yourself who were like they're talk, telling the story of their locality right they're mm-hmm. the same way and it reminded me in, in a way they kind of you know um the brilliant book by you know joy white you know terraformed, terraformed. You know, where joy mm-hmm. really kind of gets deep into Newham in a way that only someone from Newham could really explore that story, you know? You have to be there in in the place, you know? Absolutely, absolutely. Yeah, I mean, yeah, I mean, I think that's a really brilliant reference because that book, the way obviously written as she's a a native to Newham uh, and the way that she kind of, you know, is aware of and is kind of just documenting uh a, you know a kind of history or lived experience that you know on the the grander scale scheme of things is is perceived as un is unworthy of documenting right it's like these experiences real experiences that people are living um that we don't want to kind of recognize those, those lived experiences so I, I think you're right it's really good to kind of um kind of like really kind of get into the nitty-gritty of what it is because I think and I know that in the interview when you asked the question about the kind of the takeaway from the exhibition what they wanted the takeaway to be I think she says that you know you can't force someone to be empathetic but you know she does hope that it you know they they leave with something um, that potentially challenges you know perceptions and I think that that's what happens when we do break it down kind of you know micro moments so these are the lived experiences because I think I mean you know as stereotypes are they they are there to kind of dehumanize and you know remove a person from or remove a thing from a person so I think that something well, like this taking away humanity right so that's what exactly we're going back to Sylvia Winter aren't we it's like the who gets to be human right <laughs> exactly exactly and so this is a way of just showing that these are actually you know beyond the kind of um polarizing of these kind of uh talks or conversations within the media or even within like uh, policy and, and with politicians you know there's a real lived experiences there's real people that have to deal with this um and there are real people that you know we can take something from that you know you know much of this you know much of this is like you know it's documenting that has to be kind of communal because you know you know we can't wait for necessarily wait for historians or white historians specifically because you know we're well, disenfranchised they can't, in those also they can't be trusted quite frankly yeah. let's be honest because I mean you know you're you know it's interesting because obviously it's the 10th anniversary of the 2011 uprisings or riot you know and I I considered an exhibition like war in a Babylon I consider that the people's account you know and again that's taking reference to you know one of our recently passed Black British filmmakers Menelik Shabazz, mm-hmm. um, who kind of, you know, in his work and his documentary work in the 80s, going to the people of Tottenham and asking them, giving their account of what happened on the ground, right? So there's been a number of documentaries on about, or a number of takes on the 2011 period. 
And I, I find it so interesting because it's it's the tone. You know, one of the things I do now uh, when when something's on on mainstream TV, as Julia has um, as, as informed us, you know, I go, the first thing I do before I even watch it is go on to IMDb and see who the production company are, see who's funded it, and see who's making this film. Because, you know, in making a film, you set up the synopsis in order to get the money. They've already worked out what story they're going to tell. Mm-hmm. It's true. And so we're led down a particular path. And I think I'm getting to that age now where I see how this cycle works, right? Something happens, an incident, whatever it is. It could be here we're talking about 2011 uprisings of August 2011. It could be the minor strike that happened in the early 80s, right? Mm-hmm. But then you get this this kind of, okay, 10 years on, 20 years on, after the event, people want to then tell the story. But in telling that story, some people's voices, or many people's voices, get left out. You know, you hear from the courts, you hear from the government, you hear from the police, you may get a couple of activists. But it's a kind of narrative that narrows this story. It's like, oh, well, we can put that away now. That's history. So 2011 now is history it's an incident it happened but we've moved on and what an exhibition like war in a babylon does what talking to your friends and getting the testimonies or the people you know in tottenham Mm -hmm. it reminds us no this was not a moment this is merely an incident in the kind of systemic operations of the united kingdom this is how britain works through these testimonies that you gathered from the residents in Tottenham, mm. through the curators um, who are currently um, exhibiting War in a Babylon at ICA, against the backdrop of extreme anti-Black violence being enacted upon Black Britons by the British state or apparatus of the British state, be it the deportation centres or the home office, obviously responsible via the home office, or the police, actually the police on the street, it seems to be the home office, right? Because the police are ultimately yeah, yeah. Um, governed by the home yeah, sector, yeah. right? Yeah, yeah, so it exactly. seems to be that particular, the home, the home office, that other particular apparatus of the British state that are being utilised here. Um, and it goes back. Um, so I think this kind of telling these stories you forget, Donnelly. It's true, though, isn't it? No, it's true. It is that, you know, when you said you forget, and I think, you know, that was also something that was mentioned, um, you know, in your interview about, you know, our, our forgetfulness as, you know, a kind of public. We are very quick to forget, you know, things and be, you know, very uh, unaware of lapse of time and, and so on. We, you know, we don't... Um, you know, delving or establish time very well in terms of forgetting things that happen. And like you said, marking this as a 10th anniversary and like who's who's marking this, right? There are obviously very people, lots of people who feel very strongly about this being recognised. Um, you know, like how does that go about? It's a lot of, um, you know, a lot of workers had to go into have to get this done. Um, so, yeah, but I think that, you know, in, in terms of that forgetfulness, I also just wanted to think about, you know, you mentioned the deportations, um, you know, We've already, you know, we're, you know, the Windrush scandal was not is not that far away. Um, this is still kind of 
complicit to the Windrush scandal because many of the people that are still being deported are generally kind of like unlawful and very underhanded ways. You know, people get deported and then the Home Office is like, oh, maybe we shouldn't have deported you. You know, you can come back. But um, the damage is done, Mm. you know. And so, you know, you know, these things are still happening. And, you know, we have these moments where we like things that get hyped up in the media and then uh, get quickly kind of dispelled and forgotten. And, you know, we do, you know, we, you know, and it's like these activists who are the ones that are doing this tireless work behind the scenes, whether there is media coverage or not, of making sure that um, the government is, you know, rightfully challenged and held accountable uh, as well as making sure that, you know, people, the very real effects of this on people's lives uh, can be mitigated. And so, you know, I, I think something like this is is so important to see because, you know, it really is a, a community effort. And it's so exciting to to see something like this um, that's not, you know, you know, I think you said this also, you know, about being kind of censored. It seems to be a kind of... Um, uh, a sense of freedom that was kind of given. I'm not sure there's obviously some limitations obviously put in place, but you know, there's a sense of freedom, a kind of that is kind of all, that's kind of refreshing in terms of what you would generally see in an, um, exhibition spaces. There's an article that was published in the Guardian today, and we'll, we will post it as part of when we post this episode by Van, Van Lee Burke. He's a Black British photographer. He basically said in an article which I um, uh, posted or retweeted, should I say. And I thought it was very interesting. Just the headline, it seemed to really caught people's um, attention. But he says, you know, we're not past, he says about Black Britain being Black British, he said, we're not passing through. I agree. I think as well, you know, I do agree that that headline is is evocative. And, um, Mm -hmm. you know, I and I think it's very poignant, because I think, you know, especially obviously, we've mentioned Windrush, this kind of generation from, you know, the mass migrations of 19, like nineteen the end of 1940s to you know the 50s uh, sorry the 60s to 70s um you know we kind of we do kind of maybe nostalgically kind of like perceive this this generation this moment as being like the defining of black Britain mm. when you know this isn't where black Britain's story begins right it's just probably the 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 this part of the story where Black Britain becomes the most becomes prominent, right? As a population, we become prominent in Britain, but there have always been Black people in Britain, and as you know, so many historians have have spoken on this that there have always been uh, both Black and just you know multi-ethnic uh, populations within Britain. And so, you know, I think you know that whole idea we're not passing through is because well, we've always we've always been here. <laughs> You know, and, you know, there are the proof, we have the proof to, to, to you know, back that up. Um, and so, yeah, and I think that, you know, when we, we do think of like Windrush or that moment, we just think of like Britain, the blackening of Britain being this period, this kind of mid 20th century. And it's like, no, you know, there is so much to to that narrative as well. Yeah, yeah. Which feeds into what's going on today, right? Um, mm. And I thought... Um, one of the other themes which comes up, particularly in the in the testimonies that um, that were narrated, was that you know I guess you know they're obviously think they're reflecting on Tottenham. Of course, the, you know the the 2011 August 2011 is very vivid 
But of course, you know, that's 10 years ago and, and people, you know, whatever happens, one has to find some way to kind of carry on with our lives. Right. Sometimes it's very difficult to move forward, but you do have to carry on. And so looking at Tottenham today and one of the themes that very much has come up is 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 gentrification. Right. So mm-hmm. one mm-hmm. of the the impacts of of August 2011 was the, there was a you know there the was a clear message from the people that hey we are suffering right we're suffering and the response was gentrification so we were gonna we're gonna do up Tottenham but who did they do up who are they doing Tottenham up for right we know it's not for the people of Broadwater Farm exactly right? exactly I think yeah I think that you just kind of like just hit the nail on the head right because I think I mean maybe I mean I imagine this also applies to um to Britain as well but you know when you just said that it also kind of just reminded me of things um kind of U.S. history when you think of like the Tulsa riots for example mm-hmm. where it's just this the the riots become an excuse for the state to build over black settlement. Mm-hmm. Right. And so we had the riots and obviously it caused destruction, um, which doesn't necessarily you know we, we try to convey that as being the rioters, those that were the residents. But that's not necessarily all the case. We know that. But, you know. We have to then, you know, kind of, you know, regenerate the area we have to then, you know, re- re- redevelopment. And then, like you said, this redevelopment isn't for the residents. It's well, we need to, we, we, you know, revitalize the the area so we're going to you know build more premium uh housing that becomes unaffordable or unattainable for those that would may have lost their houses and so we see this as another kind of way of sidelining um well i think it's, it's, for me it's it, it is side but, but but it's worse than that in a way because you know i live in southeast london in lewisham and it's going for a very similar experience so what you see in this this constant gentrification that's happening, well, all over the world, I guess, but how it particularly impacts black life, right? We see what's happening in Brixton, and of course in Tottenham, it's like when the white flight decides, okay, you know, we don't want to live in the suburbs anymore, we want to live back in the city. So where do the black people go who are living in the city? Where do we go? Absolutely. I mean, yeah, I mean, I think there's two things on that. So, I mean, I mean, first, I was just going to say that, you know, you know, the Tottenham Stadium, I think, has probably profited quite a lot from the the damage, not saying directly or just indirectly, because obviously they've been able to acquire a lot of space um, in the area um, to build their new super stadiums and their hotels and their and all the other kind of fancy uh kind of uh, life social life that's being built around you know football. so they're using utilizing that's the tottenham hotspur football tottenham club Hotspurs, um, yes, jobs, you know, so the premier league the, but they're using that as a what do they call it an anchor so they're the anchor kind of institution of which they build around all of these urban renewal projects right absolutely absolutely so you know so the riots became a moment you know the destruction of the riots basically was just a way another way that the the Tottenham 
football stadium was able to acquire land, right, in the process of their expansion, because down they have a super stadium um, that's, you know, also been integrated with like shops, um, a hotel, which obviously is also facilitate the economy of Premier League football. So, you know, part of that has been that they've been able to gain, you know, a lot of, of, of access to land via, you know, as part of the legacy of, of, of the riots. But, you know, also I think that, you know, they've also been able to, you know, because they are a Premier League football club, they've also been able to leverage that into kind of political power and also to kind of um, also facilitate their their expansion as well, you know, which is not necessarily, you know, as much as obviously it's believed that, you know, that the football stadium is going to bring a lot of jobs and a lot of economy, but it's not necessarily the local jobs um, or the local people that necessarily are always going to be at the receiving end of this you know, trickle down um, effect. So, yeah, I think that there's something about that that also needs to be, you know, thought about because they have, you know, have very much profited, like I said, maybe not necessarily directly, but in indirect ways have been able to profit from the damage. Mm, mm. No, I, I, I can see that, definitely. I would agree with that. I, I mean, one of the things that um, this obviously will be, you know, as we kind of move in towards our, kind of concluding this, one of the things that was said during the conversation the, that I had with uh, the co-curators, two of the co-curators of the exhibition, uh, Kamara Scott and uh, Rihanna J. Parker, one of the things we talked about, well, they talked about was, you know, these things have happened, but how do we move forward? I, I was there, I went to visit the exhibition with um, an elder and also a good friend, um, DJ, cultural producer, Great Black Britain, June Reed. But one of the things that came up, not just in our conversation, but just kind of meeting people, was this kind of issue, this kind of conversation around community. You know, thinking back to our very first episode with uh, uh, Lisa Palmer, where we kind of discussed small acts uh, the tv series there's a sense and and i felt that coming off the back of the exhibition this is me personally mm-hmm. that you get a greater you get a you feel that sense and i felt it in small acts but being in this exhibition i also felt it that we had a black community we definitely had it but that's something whatever community we had that there's a sense of loss that what we had or what we thought we had, that that it's not there now. Um, and, and Rihanna Jade says something really interesting about wanting, you know, um, she talked about just the kind of the, the challenge mm. of black grassroots activism in Britain. And she contextualized it as, as a millennial would as, you know, dealing with the aftermath of austerity which mm-hmm. we're still in. We've been experiencing this since 2007 or 2008, depending on when you want to start the clock. Mm. Um, gentrification, um, Brexit, obviously COVID. We've had so many shocks to the economy since 2007. It's made it very difficult for any grassroots, when we're talking particularly about grassroots activism. And I'm thinking actually really a lot about... Um, you know, some of the classic books that kind of kind of um, drew on that about how grassroots activism got, I guess, what do they call it, uh, got co-opted in the 1980s, mm, right? So mm-hmm, there's, there's mm-hmm. lots of been written 
about um, how grassroots activism, black activism got co-opted by the state in the 1980s. But 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 I think Rihanna's touching on something else. It's like it's not just it is the state, but it's more than that. It's like the whole economy, the structure has made it. And also our what's happened to us as black people in Britain since the 1980s, we're talking 40 years. That it's made it impossible for those grassroots activisms to flourish is rather than this kind of utopian thing of these grassroots activists, because she's basically mm-hmm. saying this is not it's great. But she's saying, I can't do it. We can't do it. And she talks about care and consideration that actually we just need to talk with one another. We just need to open up communications and just be together in the space. And I, and I, I, I felt that was a really interesting theme that I felt I left with that actually it's like we need to reimagine community because our elders are not here anymore. They're not here. So how do we do community in Britain in this face of this hostile environment, right? In the face of the anti-blackness, in the aftermath of BLM, in yeah. in the reality of Brexit and austerity and all the rest of them, how do we do community, black community? How do how do we how do we gather as a black community or black communities? I mean I think there's a, a it's I think that's a brilliant question. I think it's an absolute brilliant question. And just listening to you kind of break down the argument, I just um you know, obviously researching and obviously writing, I, you know, just, I just hear your words and I just, I just hear um, Stuart Hall Hmm. echoing from your words. So, you know, British cultural theorist Stuart Hall's work, um, you know, particularly I'm I'm thinking of the essay Frontlines Backyards, you know, he, he's, he's, he's talking to you about, he's saying exactly what you're saying. He was obviously, he wrote that, I think in the, the late 1990s and he, he he essentially just says exactly what you just came out your mouth he was obviously speaking at a time um it, i think the, the speech actually references new labor um the election of new labor and he you know he was voicing those things about the disintegration of the black community um you know as you understood it in britain which is what you've just discussed and yeah and i think that but I think what you also convey is that there's, at least I, I hear from you, is that there's an optimism that it's is a potential of bringing that back, a potential of restoring it. Maybe that's something that like um, the pandemic COVID-19 has kind of brought about. And I think, you know, especially if you think about last summer's protests, um, you know, when we, at least that moment when we're actually not supposed to be together, um, you know, there's this real collective desire to be together even at that risk so I I think that you know I I see that question as being a very valid question but I also see that question as being something that is optimistic as in this is something that we want and that we need to think about how we can envision that because you know I I, yeah I think it's a something to ponder how do we you know be together especially in moments where we're literally being told to not be together how do we form that bond and that that community and I think that also like you know from the two from the sorry from the both the rights of 2011 because you know one thing that we actually haven't mentioned obviously starts in Tottenham but it goes up and up the country um not by you know obviously the press at that time you know very much tried to make this uh, tried to write it off as something that was very um consumeristic but you know it was a very real urgency around policing that you know many uh black uh 
communities up and down the country feel and can relate to the issue that and the wider stemming working from class Tottenham. Right? Yeah, and the wider absolutely. working class communities, which include, you know, yes, absolutely. black, brown and white, who feel absolutely. that sort of sense of policing, of not being able, of being, you know, that curtailment, you know? Absolutely, yeah. Yeah, black and white communities were both uh, recognizing that experience of being over policed and we're also rebelling. And so, you know, you know, we see a real desire for a kind of collective action. Um, you know, and I think that we absolutely need to 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 encourage it, right? And I think, you know, also one of the things having said that about collective action just reminded me, like, you know, of the riots, the actual riots, when we remember um the the connectivity of the of the blackberry phone right that being the central part of like the uh of the kind of publicity around uh the rights was that young kids were using the phone to con- connect with people up and down the country and tell each other to write right that was the the narrative that was being spread um but it's still just a point about connectivity about you know connections and i think that also speaks to community um, that, you know, it's not necessarily that they wanted to riot, that they all just felt, you know, this frustration and this pent up energy and this pent up, um, you know, not being heard and not being uh, kind of respected and, you know, and having this to be the last resort, you know, riots are the last resort. And so, you know, I think that there's something about that network that happens with the riots that also speaks to this idea of community, which I think mm-hmm. we also see with the summer riots, because, again, mm-hmm. that also was something that happened up and down the country. Um, you know, so I think if there is this idea of community that's struggling to be restored. My 